Rakuten helps you be a smarter shopper and save money on just about everything you buy. We all have things we need to buy, whether it's home essentials or a self-care treat just for you. With Rakuten, you get cash back on clothes, groceries, travel, and much, much more. Even better, you can stack cash back on top of other deals like store sales and credit card points. In case you're wondering, the stores on Rakuten are the ones you know and love, and lots of cool ones waiting to be discovered like Nike, Levi's, Samsung, Sephora, Saks Fifth Avenue, Neiman Marcus, Ugg, Petco, I could go on and on. When it comes to savvy shopping and saving money, Rakuten is a no-brainer. It's free and easy to join. Just go to Rakuten.com now or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Rakuten. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafunds.com to join the community. All right, today is March the 20th in 2023, and Trey the Gulf is back on the show. Welcome, Trey. Thank you so much, Nicholas. Always a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we've both grown beards since last time. And we're, I'm also in doing the cap like, like you did the first time and now you do it. <laughs> yeah, I've transferred most of my hair from my head to my beard, unfortunately. <laughs> the title of the episode, the unofficial title uh, and the actual title, part of the actual title is we, Trey and Nick are going to riff and ramble. Perfect. It's exactly what we do when we're in person together in any case, but we're going to record it this time. Exactly. So the background is Trey and I are friends. We met in Prospera. Uh, Trey was the CMO of, of Prospera, the most advanced modern charter city. And we took an opportunity, took that opportunity to talk about kind of a newcomer in the competitive governance space, Balaji Srinivasan's the network state. It turned out to be the, um, for a time, the, the most successful episode on the podcast. Just recently being overtaken by Alex Tabarok. Damn you, Alex. <laughs> you know, I'm not unhappy about that. Uh, to even uh, to even be in the same kind of conversation as as Alex is awesome. I'm a huge fan of his. Yeah, yeah. But hey, you were we were beating you were beating Robin Hansen. I thought, oh, that's that's fantastic. Also a huge fan of Robin, uh, so we'll hold it against him. Exactly. But so the episode was very crucial because we really dig Balaji Srinivasan's book, The Network State. We really like it. And a lot of people care about it right now. It's getting very nemified. I go into tons of conferences and people know about it. What many people don't know is it's kind of a more recent innovation to the competitive governance space. It kind of comes after developments such as seasteading and charter cities, of which Prospera is kind of the most advanced version. It's kind of the zero to one. So there's a lot of practical insight that Balaji that the book is missing. And Trey is one of the best people in the world to provide these practical insights from building Prospera on the ground. Trey, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit, what you've been doing with Prospera thus far and what happened since then and what you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. So I was, uh, I was the first or second, depending on how you count full-time employees, either the first or second full-time employee with Prospera. I was chief of staff uh, and chief marketing officer for the last five and a half or so years, somewhere in there. 
um, was there from the very beginning when we were in a tiny WeWork office and there was like three of us up to what it is now, which is massive scale, uh, the tallest building on the island of Roatan, uh, almost completed. I mean, a whole nine yards. So it was, it was amazing to get to be a part of that growth journey from day one. I have since, however, about six months ago or so, uh, moved on from Prosper. I took a, what, a, what uh, we were calling a temporary leave of absence for now, uh, just to kind of see how things play out and to leave the door open, of course, um, to go co-found and become CEO of a new project of mine called Learn Arena. Um, what we're doing now is trying to fix e-learning because uh, a little while back, I tried to, part of the inspiration for this company, I tried to learn JavaScript using uh, Code Academy and Udemy, and the experience was absolutely horrendous, and I didn't even finish the course. And I'm not alone in that because uh, roughly 80% of people who pay for, pay for an online learning course do not complete it. 80% of people, this product is so bad, 80% of people buy it and then do not use it, which is just an incredible indictment of the biggest players in that space. So uh, we are looking to shake up the e-learning world uh, in two principal ways from kind of a unique value proposition perspective. One, well, we create a financial incentive to learn. So we let students profit from learning. At the end of each course, uh, they take a skill mastery challenge and they are competing against their peers in the course to win that. If they finish in the top 15% of that final exam, that final skill mastery challenge, they can earn a profit on the course which is real money, not like an in-game currency like Fortnite or something like that. They can pull it off the platform and use it for whatever they want, or they can reinvest it into more courses on Learn Arena. And then two, we are also bringing kind of social competitive aspects to gaming. Uh, the, the video game industry has for decades kind of social engineered these fantastic dopamine inducing uh, mechanisms and systems and platform design and user experience design. And so we're basically taking all of those things and instead of encouraging young men and women, but especially young men, to be honest, to waste thousands of hours of their lives week in and week out playing video games, take that same set of incentives that drives them to play the video games and apply them to e-learning for the first time so that people can actually uh, leave their mark on the world and do something pro-social instead of something anti-social like playing video games all day. So that's a, a brief summary of what I'm working on now. Great. I'm really excited. We're going to talk a bit more about that later in the episode. We're going to close it full circle. Towards the end, we're going to talk about education, a free society, the uh, crisis of manhood that's right now being discussed. Um, until we get there, we want to dig back into Balaji's book, The Network State, right? So there's a couple of, I'd say, new developments, some of which are public, some of which are not public. What I definitely contend is it's been a massive positive for the movement, right? So that's just the first thing to notice. Whoever was in the competitive governance space before, it was you know, a small and, and lonely space, right? So you know more about that than I do, Trey, because I just joined after I met, after I found out about Prosper last year. And now I go to conferences, I go to East Denver, and there's like a hundred people that go to a talk that includes the network state and the topic. Tons of people have read or heard about it. And um, that's great. So it brings more talent. It attracts people from the crypto, from the Ethereum space, people from um, emerging markets, from India, from China, maybe people from Africa. Afropolitan was formed kind of using the template of the network state. And I think it gives the clearest expression of how the strategy, how a strategy can look like to put it into practice. That, that's exactly right. And I'll just add a little bit onto that kind of a more entertaining anecdote. I used to hate when people would ask me the question like pre-network state, what do you do? Uh, because to try to explain like the concept of charter cities, the concept of special economic zones and Prospera as a result of all of that, you got to start at a very foundational assumption. The idea that governance could even be provided in a different manner with different institutions than it currently is, 
it's kind of a brain breaking thing. So the answer to that question, I would, I would often say, how much time do you have? Because I have to explain these like foundational philosophical concepts of governance and political economy to get to what we're up to. Or I would just kind of flippantly say, oh, we build cities, right? Because that's uh, at least shorthand enough. It's close. It's not right, but it's close enough. But now that Balaji has written the network state and it's gotten as popular as it has, my first question is, have you read of or heard of the network state? And nine times out of 10 now, the answer is yes. And I get to skip all of that. I just say, oh, well, I'm with Prospero. And they're like, oh, cool. Yeah, I've heard of it. Super easy. It's, it's, a, it's been such a blessing to your point. And that's the kind of the real proof of it in my social experiences now. When I go to conferences now, it's, it's, I don't have to explain as much. I just say, have you heard of the network state? Cool. That's us. Yeah, but at the same, yeah, but at the same time, people don't know yet about, um, well, the, people often think or have the takeaway, hey, it's just like very futuristic thing. It's kind of a bit out there and a bit utopian. And they don't know, hey, there are some things that already exist that aren't like purely in the cloud or sitting on Discord servers, right? So there's Prospera, there's some Quashi, there's Itana Talent City, there's a couple of free zones, there's a couple of projects which are undisclosed that are coming online in East Africa and in West Africa. So I would have tell people that they're like, what? And then I tell people about Prospera, they're like, what? Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Which, to be fair, is a bit of an indictment of my performance at Prospero because uh, not, not enough people had heard of us, but uh, that is going to, to change soon enough. Um, the new CMO is absolutely phenomenal. His name's Chris Wilson. He's doing a great job and uh, we'll have a much, uh, much more kind of advanced and active web presence moving forward as well. Um, but to your point, yeah, it always blows people's mind to hear, oh, someone's already kind of putting this idea into practice. And that kind of relates to one of our criticisms from last time, which I'll just very briefly kind of give a, a TLDR of, which is that... Um, for all the great uh, parts of the book and how well it explains the kind of concepts around and the foundations of why uh, th something like the network state, state is needed in the world. The network stake. I love the network. That's a, a funny Freudian flip there. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, it was a bit lacking, in my opinion, actually, in uh, his recommendations for action, for actually doing these things. Um, and that comes from just having done it before, having been one of the first people to do it before. Um, he drastically kind of overestimated uh, how effective one can be as a decentralized kind of online entity and drastically underestimated the degree to which you have to work with rather than be antagonistic toward existing nation states and existing institutions. Um, so that's part of the the problem. If you if I talk to somebody now who has read the network state, I have to kind of give that uh, that clarification if the conversation continues much longer. I'm like, just just to be clear. We're not a network state. Like what Prospera does is we work with uh, the governments of developing countries to create these cities within special economic zones to catalyze economic development and prosperity. We're definitely not a network state in the Balaji sense of, hey, let's just gather a bunch of people and tell the government to go kick rocks. Exactly. Well, also one thing important to note is that I think the two network state projects that follow the Balajian template most closely are probably Afropolitan and Praxis. And what they do really well and what they discovered is really important is facilitating the in real life interaction, right? So that's a big part of what they're doing, right? So Afropolitan is kind of carried by a community of like 200,000 diaspora Africans, right? They organized this big conference in Ghana that generates 5 billion in economic revenue, right? So they're like massively sort of generating these in real life interactions to build communities. So that's just one important thing to note. Yeah, and then the other is, and that also kind of already brings me a bit to the real challenges in building some of these places that have a physical component and have diplomatic recognition, right? So largely is kind of just flipping the model on the on the hats that like Patrick Friedman and Charter Cities had kind of starts with 
sort of having territory and diplomatic recognition and then sort of build community around that. And you're just saying, let's flip the model on its head. Let's start with the community and then sort of build the, get the diplomatic. But, but there's a couple of practical challenges that you will discover um, or anyone will discover who's in this space, right? So as soon as you're in the real world, you are political, right? So, and you have all this legitimacy that you need to build all the credibility. So can you talk about that and your learnings from Prospera, what it means to sort of build legitimacy and credibility in Honduras? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll give kind of a stylized example and then speak to our like kind of direct experience. As a kind of stylized example, and to put it in extremist to make the point, um, you could have an online community of 100,000 people and let's say 50,000 of them even, which would be an insane conversion rate for this, are willing and able to, and will even put some money in escrow, for example, uh, to kind of credibly signal and commit to moving somewhere. And if your marketing pitch, your persona, your kind of public uh, identity is we are the crazy anarcho-capitalist uh, crypto guys, you're not going to get anywhere. The, the existing governments of anywhere in the world and every single square inch of land is claimed by an existing government, by the way. So you have to work with them at some point. No existing government is going to look at that and say, oh, cool, you're crazy crypto anarchist. I would love to give you complete and total freedom and autonomy <clears throat> within our jurisdiction. Definitely nothing, nothing bad could come of that. Um, and I'm not even saying anything bad would come of it. I, I'm partial to that kind of ideology myself at a personal level. But if you go to like the kind of staid, risk-averse uh, politicians who exist uh, in the real world and control the levers of power, with that sort of pitch, I don't care how many people you have. It's not going to go over. It's going to go over like a lead balloon, as the, as the old cliche goes. Um, so it's important to kind of starting off. Uh, and, and again, I'm, by the way, I love the approach of Praxis and Afropolitan and many others of building the community online first. I'm not critiquing that idea. I love that there are many different pathways people are attempting to make these happen. And I wish them all the best and I hope they all succeed. But you have to cultivate a sense of like political legitimacy. You have to seem like adults, basically. You have to seem like serious, uh, professional individuals who are not going to come in and just do crazy things that are going to bring bad international PR to the place or create any sort of, and this is important, create any sort of political risk domestically for the political actors who are in your cause uh, within the country in which you're targeting trying to work in. And that is extremely hard, extremely hard. Um, I mean, what's happening with Prospero right now and the Honduran government and the, the, uh, the lawsuit at Ixit is a great example of that. Despite the fact that we went to the government first, we worked very closely with them. All, all it takes is one change of government, right? One uh, particularly ideological faction that is opposed to you to take over those institutions of government. Uh, and it, things can turn fairly sour very, fairly quickly. Now, Prosper is still working out the way that it is and is still functioning and continuing to grow and prosper precisely because we spent years working with international uh, NGOs, with international political organizations, with the United States government, with many other entities. Uh, to build strong ties, both formally and informally, to show the world that, like, look, we're here to catalyze prosperity and economic development. We're not here to create anarcho, crypto, whatever, right? Uh, we're here to just bring jobs and bring investment. And we're doing that through innovation, through catalyzing entrepreneurship, through Im drastically improving governance institutions. All that's still there. Um, the difference is just kind of in how you message it, how you approach it. Anyone that does this really needs to at least spend a little bit of time in traditional politics so they can understand the incentives that drive the actions of these people. And they need to read the public choice theory literature um, from institutional economics to understand kind of how government works with the rose-colored glasses taken off, what incentives these politicians face, and then work within that framework to make it happen. If you're approaching from the get-go as 
kind of hostile to existing powers in any way, or not even actively hostile, but just not actively trying to work with them and placate them, they're going to make it their life's mission to stop you. And they will succeed because at the end of the day, if they control the political institutions, they're going to. Yeah. So a lot of the building is, is a very unsexy job, right? And very boring. Yeah, exactly. So you have to, you know, work with politicians sometimes and sometimes their processes are taking really long, right? Doing all that too eventually. So your citizens don't have to go through that or people that live in your territory. And that's, I think that part that what people really underestimate is that sort of doing these things are political projects, right? So I heard some people just react, oh, you know, you, the charter city model can't succeed because your political is so exposed. You have a single point of failure. Well, eventually anyone has to deal with that in that space, right? Because if you don't want to do that, if you want to stay in a, um, in like a discord server or something like that, that's just not the right space for you, right? You need to build a very good local footprint, build legitimacy and build sort of benefits that are shared with the community that's your, where, where you're building it, right? That's exactly right. And let me just to kind of expand on and get, provide a counter to my example I gave earlier, right? Imagine you have 100,000 people, 50,000 of which have put down money they're willing to move. And instead, you go to the government and say, hey, I have this massive community. It's a bunch of remote workers, tech workers, uh, tech founders, perhaps, uh, people that run traditional businesses are all willing to move. And they will move at least part of their businesses here as well. And the reason that they want to move here and they want to come help you is to catalyze economic development and prosperity for your people as well as for them and their people. That's a totally different pitch. And I think that's, that's exactly kind of the, the Praxis model, the Afropolitan model, right? And I think that's how, if you're going to be successful with that approach, and again, I think they, I, I wish them all the best and I hope they will, that's how you got to do it. And that's exactly what they're doing as well, right? They're not coming in with this kind of antagonistic approach that Balaji lays out in the book, which is the entire point of my critique here. If you come with a credible pool of capital, of jobs and of people who will actually come and do things in the real world, like at the end of the day, if I had to put it super bluntly, uh, you're, the, if you're trying to make a network state, you have to act in the real world. You have to act in meat space and you have to try to physically, tangibly, realistically make things better in meat space. If that's the frame from which you're coming from, then building that community online that will then move is incredibly powerful and can help you jumpstart the process in a way that taking the prosper approach, right, which was working with the government first, finding the land first, uh, building the governance institutions first, then building the community, the different approach, the kind of Afropolitan practice approach can work just as well, if not better, because they start with a, a community already built in. But that presupposes they were able to get buy-in from local political leaders. So it's all about, I mean, every, at the end of the day, everything in politics, everything comes back to identity, perception, persona, and marketing, if you want to put a, a, just a blunt word on it. Um, and I think that's how you have to do it. And I think with that framing, then that community-first approach can be incredibly successful. To go off of that into what's kind of the moral innovation or the key innovation of Prospera, something that we care a lot about, right? So it's around the human flourishing, the economic development through entrepreneurship, right? Through institutions that enable you to do business yeah, where that has ease of doing business, where the regulatory environment is enabling instead of stifling for you. So that's something that both of us care a lot about. Uh, what changed since that podcast? I'd read Mare's My Flying Car. Oh my God, that book was so good. I'm it so glad you loved a, it. I yeah, recommend that, was, that book to literally everyone. Yeah, yeah, that was just such a revelation. And I mean, it was already kind of that what the whole podcast is about was already written in that book. So I'm <laughs> feeling like I'm systematically going through some of his insight and through these technologies, adding a little bit on, on top and whatever. 
it was great to have him on together, right? So we interviewed Jay Storrs Hall together and met him at the Forsted Institute, was hanging out with him there. So very big inspiration for the podcast. So, so that's kind of what I care about with Infinita, what we want to build a prosper sort of building this better regulatory environment, some, some very futuristic technologies for like gene therapy, for biotech, right? So for, um, flying cars, eventually robotic construction, crypto, web three, um, drones, uh, energy. So all these things, um, try, how has your changed? how has your thinking evolved or changed since then? Yeah, uh, I, a part of me has become a little bit more pessimistic. Now, let me, I'm actually going to start with the, the part I'm still optimistic about, right? Which is within very specific industries. I still think the, to put it bluntly, the idea of regulatory arbitrage, effectively just building much better, more effective legal and regulatory institutions to both allow entrepreneurs to do what they do to make the world a better place to innovate and to create while simultaneously still protecting property rights, preserving the public good, limiting negative externalities, all that good stuff still can work for some specific kind of niche industries. Um, things like preclinical trial stage medical research. So let me pause on this one for a second. I say preclinical trial because while I was working at Prosper, I did a lot of business development, of course. And part of that was talking to existing medical research and biotech companies. And what I found over and over again was like, look, we can't do phase one, two, three clinical trials in your special economic zone because a, the regulator where we want to sell these drugs, namely the FDA, won't even recognize it. Uh, or B, uh, if we're going to do it such that the FDA will recognize it, we might as well do it in the U.S. anyway, because we're having to comply with the regulations no matter where we do it. And there's no real advantage to doing it somewhere else, basically. Um, but kind of extended from that, the more I thought about it, what that ends up meaning is for any sort of medical research that is beyond that very early stage, unfortunately, I don't think there is a lot of advantage to be had from creating better regulatory environments in specific special economic zones. I'm still incredibly optimistic on the space, but my like, let's say tempered optimism now is that just too much of the world in terms of regulation is international and is dominated by the United States. If you look at finance being my favorite example of this, if you look at finance, right, it is effectively impossible to do anything at all innovative in finance because of the SEC. The SEC has extraterritorial jurisdiction, meaning if you're doing something in anywhere in the world, whether it be Prospero, whether it be Hong Kong, whether it be uh, China, anywhere, it doesn't matter. And it touches U.S. investors. It touches U.S. citizens. Your management has a single U.S. citizen on it. Any of your shareholders are U.S. citizens. You market to U.S. citizens. Then the full brunt of the SEC's regulations apply. Um, so it becomes effectively impossible to do things from a regulatory perspective there. The same internationalization of regulation applies to medicine for the uh, manufacturer, production, distribution, or international transfer of pharmaceuticals. Uh, if you want to sell to a market bigger than Roatan and you're working in, in Prospera, right? Your option is either A, get people to come to Roatan. And again, there are FDA regulations on how you can market to U.S. citizens or try to comply with FDA regulations to enter the U.S. market. But then at, the, at that point, again, there's no regulatory arbitrage being had. Um, the same is true for a bunch of stuff. Okay. The, the internationalization of regulation is just uh, soul crushing, uh, in my opinion, and incredibly frustrating. Now, having said that, you can still do incredibly innovative stuff and drastically increase the kind of pace of innovation uh, and narrow down on the thing that you do want to market and go, go big with, with something like Prosper and a special economic zone, because there's a specific type of innovation that is illegal everywhere else in the world when it comes to biotech that is totally legal and Prospera, provided you have the right contracts and legal structures in place. 
and in a few other places in the world, but I'm focusing on Prospera because obviously that's the one I know most about, um, that could be transformative, which is the iterative process, right? So the way pharmaceutical research normally works, say in the US, is you spend absolutely forever trying to refine a specific product that you're like fairly confident will work. And you're also fairly confident isn't going to do a lot and isn't going to have any negative side effects. And then you have to choose to invest multiple billions of dollars to bring it all the way to market, right? Uh, and you can't test these things on an iterative basis. What I mean by that is like, imagine you come up with a new formulation for uh, a gene therapy, for example. And I'm using this concrete example because mine and your mutual friend, Mac Davis, is running a, a gene therapy clinic at a Prospera. He couldn't do what he's doing in the U.S. and iteratively, rapidly improve the product on a kind of person-by-person -person basis because in the U.S. there is no right-to-try legislation, right? Like you and I can't just contractually agree with each other that you're going to pay me for a medical service that I'm going to provide to you and you acknowledge in the contract that I haven't gone through the FDA processes or whatever the case may be. So the ability to rapidly iterate, to build something, come up with an idea, test it in real life with real people or with real animals first, of course, to, for safety and efficacy, and then real people, and then see how that responds and then modify the product and then try it again in a very rapid, it basically shortens that innovation and development cycle. That is where I think the real niche regulatory arbitrage safe for medicine is uh, for things like this. Then there are a few other areas where that same logic applies, right? Where, where it is illegal to do early stage iteration elsewhere in the world, but you can do it in a special economic zone optimized for innovation and entrepreneurship like Prospera. Things like nuclear fusion, right? So with nuclear fusion, if you want to do very quick scale uh, tests of like commercial scale models, again, provided you got the right legal and regulatory approvals, not just from Prospera, but from the, um, the EA, AEA and the yeah, Atomic Energy Association and a few other international bodies. You could do very quick iterative improvement, like test, modify, improve, test, modify, improve. That loop is just much faster in a, in a, a place like Prospera. Another one would be space technologies, right? So there's this great book called Liftoff uh, that tells the story of SpaceX's early growth and, and, um, and expansion that I recommend to basically everybody. Um, I have our uh, Learn Arena book club going through that book right now, actually. And in that book, Elon talks about how the FAA would often get in their way like massively, and they're not doing anything super risky. They're out in the middle of nowhere and they want to do a short test, what they call test hops, right? Well, that test hop has to go through layers and layers of FAA approval. And they're not even going very high. They're going like a few thousand feet. They're just testing to see if the thing will fly at all. Um, while they're able to do that in the US still, they could be literally an order of magnitude or two faster if they were doing that type of rapid iterative testing, not sending stuff into space, but rapid iterative testing of the engineering products they could do so much faster somewhere with the, a regulatory environment that acknowledges that like, hey, you're in a safe space over here. You're not launching missiles that could fall on a city or something like that. Go for it. You're not launching rockets that could fall on a city or something like that. Test it. Like, you don't need our approval for that. You don't need a, our insight for that. We'll have a, a kind of a flight restriction zone over you guys' pad. Let us know what days you're doing it. Totally fine. We can take it from there. Um, another one is construction technology. So Alicia Namad and Circular Factory is another good example of this where you can take and test and rapidly iterate on new construction technologies, which is the single sector of the U.S. economy, at least, that is, has had a, actually not even a stagnation, but a productivity slowdown. Uh, there's this great subset called construction physics. I recommend everyone read if you really want to nerd out on construction. But basically, that substack, the whole thesis of it is this dude goes through a treasure trove of data describing all the different ways in which construction has gotten way worse and slower and more inefficient and less productive in the U.S., and you could do things like testing early stage uh, ideas you have to improve construction productivity rapidly and iteratively in a space like Prospera that you just can't do because of zoning, planning, safety regulations, city councils, all that good stuff in traditional jurisdictions. And then for all of these things, right, for space, 
for housing, construction, for medicine, for nuclear fusion. Once you find the thing that works at a small scale with an iterative process in Prospera, and you know that's going to be your home run, then you can go back to the rest of the world market, to the US, wherever, and go through the formal regulatory process and make the thing work, having already tested it and found the thing that you know will work early on. So in my mind, it's all about rapidly improving those early stages of innovation and research that you just can't do elsewhere in the world. That's what yeah. I mean by a kind of a modified optimism now, a tempered optimism. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me pose one key challenge to your argument, Please. right? And that's like a mental switch that most people don't make, right? So doing it the regular way under the FDA in the United States isn't safe. It's risky. You got a guaranteed 90 plus percent risk of your project being shut down, right? That's it right there. That's the regular way. You have a default 90 plus percent risk of your project being shut down. You can be a super great scientist. You can be super advanced in what you do, but by default, through the process alone, the risk is never. So when you apply sort of the startup mentality, yeah, you have high risks anyway, right? So that's just a normal thing. But when you then use kind of the force multiplier of the iterative process that you apply in Prospera, where you got multiple shots on goal, right? So you have that early stage, that style one and two risk reduced. Like imagine how much you can grow in a short amount of time within a couple of years. And even if Prospera fails, you've done so much R&D. You've pushed the boundaries of science so much further in a short amount of time. I think you're massively reducing the risk if you think about it this way, right? That's a great point. I could not agree more. That, that's, a, that's a great framing on this kind of improving those early uh, iterative processes of innovation. I mean, it's a matter of also how you think about the innovation you want to do, right? So... You know, many entrepreneurs, they know none of us want to break the law, right? I'm, I'm not breaking the law, right? I don't want to go to jail. So exactly. if we're looking at the things that we can do. The way the system is set up is this shoehorning us into certain areas, like mostly very software, very light touch, and away from these regulated industries, away from biotech, away from hardware. Away from, and we often don't realize. And in the point where we are, we just can't unsee or unknow what we know. We would be very sad if we, we can't just go into making the, what kind of nice to have drug on the market and like have a couple hundred million um, exit to a big pharma company with like a less than 10% chance with everything that was right. That's just not something that we can, that we can do anymore, right? So I think at, in our chem, where we are now, just knowing these things, knowing that we can use legal innovation nothing of which is, Ill, is illegitimate, right? Or even illegal so that we have provided and have built the right legal guardrails to push some of these boundaries, find some of the most innovative and most forward-thinking people there. I think you find sort of, it's kind of a filter for really high quality people, right? Like Mac and like Sean, like Alicia, like all these people. And the space is growing, right? So we are finding more of these boundaries that we can push in Prospera and other Zetas in Honduras, other pre-zones in other parts of the world. In the United States, you have VCs like Tusk Ventures, like Trust Ventures. I had Dan Epstein in my podcast, Bradley Tusk, great, um, who did the regulatory strategy for Uber. They're constantly finding loopholes how to do it in the United States. Just the other day, I talked to someone about air rights, right? And they found there's a legal loophole that actually it's not the FAA that have jurisdiction over you. You could actually argue that municipalities have jurisdiction over their air rights. So you can, and they're working right now and kind of pushing that boundary, right? And that's, so that space is only increasing and expanding in people with talent and conviction. So I think, you know, you, 
you're it's riskier sometimes in some of these spaces taking sort of the the known risk rather yep that's a great i think we're in total agreement there i i completely agree with you and that's exactly why i was stressing the importance of that kind of iterative innovation process for in places like prosper let me modify my point about how my optimism is tempered a bit uh i think in fact, I know Prosper remains the best place in the world uh, in other places like it. I'm just, again, I'm just using Prosper as an example because I'm a bit biased there for obvious reasons um, to do this type of early stage research. But it's the it's the go to market. It's like going from local and specific and early test market to global expansion to scaling. It, it, it's go to market and it's scaling that I think uh, is where my kind of tempered optimism lies, the tempered part of it's that. much optimism, to be right? figured out, but hey, and as an entrepreneur, you always have to figure things out. Like that, That's right? exactly right. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. Funny you mentioned the, the Uber example. So some people have argued, um, I think this is the, not a good reading of the law, but some people have argued for Learn Arena, right? Because students are competing against each other. They take the final skill challenge and then they can make a profit off of that. Some people have argued that that should fall under gaming regulation. By gaming, I mean gambling regulation. Now, there's no game of chance happening here. There's no chance at any point. It's just very transparently. How do you do on the final skill challenge and then ranking people from there? Um, but I've had enough, a few investors push back on that front now. And my stock answer to that has kind of become like, did Uber ask the taxi regulators if they could build their uh, system first? No, they just built it. And if you build it fast enough, what Uber showed and what I'm banking on as well, to be honest, is like, it takes a long time for the regulators to notice you. And by the time they notice you, it's too late. Um, so I'm doing the same thing with Learn Arena. I'm right there with you. Exactly. And, you know, on my podcast, I had people on like Brett Kugelmas, for example, great guy, sort of building also small scale nuclear power. And what struck me in that conversation is you need to lose the fear, right? So, and you lose the fear by gaining the expertise and the knowledge, right? So you know what you can and can't do, where these boundaries are and what's, so, so you gain mastery over your subject. And then you're coming from a place of confidence and of mastery. I think that's what's really crucial and was still possible in so many areas, right? And Agreed. again, our space is a super, super high growth space where we're discovering more and more of these things. But let me tell you what I think what the biggest risk is. Do it. And I actually haven't articulated that thought in public. Um, El Salvador and things like, and experiments like that, where you have like a very top-down government run very dictatorially. And, you know, saying, oh, we like this Bitcoin thing. I've implemented it now. No regulatory reform whatsoever. I was there and I asked them, what business disadvantages um, do you have, right? And you have to register a crypto business with their central bank, right? So what? All, yeah. It's like, what's well, nuts? At the same time, still very high taxes, still capital gains taxes, you know, all these things. And I was like, what? This is really just a marketing trick, right? And then you're like, doing what it seems like shoving it down people's throats that like don't want it or don't ask for it. Like to me, that's a bit against the spirit of Bitcoin and of crypto. So here's the risk, right? So, and maybe some of these things are good. Maybe they're well-intentioned. I talked to other people that said, oh, they just not thinking about this the right way, but they want to do these things as well. Maybe they're well-intentioned like always, right? Everyone has great intentions, but hey, look, this is a dangerous country with gang criminality. This is someone who acts quite, uh, who acts as a dictator with um, basically unlimited powers. Imagine you have another FTX, right? FTX is very bad for the reputation for crypto. Crypto is going to fail if people don't use it anymore. Imagine have, you have another FTX, but this time people are dying and people are dead on the streets. And there's pictures of it in international news with like the Bitcoin logo everywhere in the country. I think you're exactly right. That's a fantastic point. And 
uh, I'll even expand on that a little bit. And uh, this is where my point is not so much about El Salvador. My point is about sort of we have to be 10 times better than the existing systems in terms of our ethics and in terms of the safeguards and the safety we put in place, right? If we don't, if, you know, we're just much more exposed. Any star, any bad story, and FDX is not at all in our space, right? It's totally wrongly associated with it. But people say like, ah, Bahamas, special jurisdictions, whatever. They had nothing to do with it. But, but, but the point is, uh, any of these stories can be construed against us quite easily. That's where we're vulnerable. Like we're in a space that doesn't have like mainstream acceptance or awareness or understanding. So really, uh, we really have to make sure that we don't, that we stay very clean, very safe, very legit, and don't associate ourselves with causes where, you know, there is a bit of a risk or exposure to, to something like that. Okay. I'm so glad you said this. I'm going to give you, I have two kind of directions I want to go with this. And both of them, I'll reveal a little bit of inside baseball about them. Also, very you're, you're the FTX insights. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm wearing my FTX risk management intern shirt right now. I, uh, I found this on the internet and was like, I have to buy that shirt. That's hilarious. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So this was uh, two of the things you just mentioned were heated internal debates in Prosper that went on for some time, particularly the latter point about the risk. But let me start with El Salvador first. That very specifically came up. And in fact, we were uh, well connected to Samson Mao. He came and visited Prospero. We talked about the Bitcoin project to a a fairly significant degree very early on. And we internally decided consciously not to pursue that project, not to make Bitcoin city like a Prospero city, right? For the exact reason you just described, which is that if a charter city project is being governed, led, developed in a very top-down central government heavy way, it almost never works. That's how you end up with ghost cities in China. Uh, and that's how you end up with something like Bitcoin City, which has no comparative advantage. And because it has no comparative advantage, faces a massive uphill battle to try to become a success if it ever even comes to fruition. And the specific reason, to put it bluntly, is because let's imagine for a second, right? Let's imagine that, let's play out that world where we partner with uh, Bukele specifically and say, hey, We'll be your, we, we're, we are SEZ and city developers. We're your man. We're already in the, in the region. Like, we'll be happy to help you out here. Imagine then that four years from now, whenever, I, I will keep track of the electoral cycles in El Salvador, but he loses the next election. Okay. Um, the second he loses that election, that project is dead in the water because it was his project. It had his face on it. It had his name on it. It was all about like very personality led and driven from the top down by the central authority figure of El Salvador. So imagine at that point, imagine this a few years down the road and we've invested a few million or even tens of million into developing this project with them, building the governance structures, whatever. And it can just be set on fire, like very easily. Uh, that's why it's very important for charter city projects writ large. And we debated this internally for quite a while, by the way. There were a few people uh, within, and even I went back and forth of like, ah, it's an opportunity. We should try it anyway and just see what happens. Um, but ultimately, I'm very glad we didn't do it because to your point, I... Uh, I'll be blunt. I don't think anything's going to happen there. I don't think anything's going to come of that. If they ever do finally float the Bitcoin bond, uh, I don't know if it's going to raise enough money. And even if it does, like you could, you can't just will a city into existence with no comparative advantage for that city existing. Like, that just flies in the face of everything we know about city and urban development. That, that's a completely asinine assertion on its face. And I, to your point, I was just as surprised as you. We were talking to Samson. Uh, he was in, uh, in, in Prospero. I remember we were, he and I were sharing some uh, Monkey Lala's, my favorite Roatan specific drink. And I asked him about this. I was like, all right, so like, what do the governance structures of Bitcoin City look like? He was like, oh, we haven't gotten that far yet, but we'll figure it out. It's going to have a special economic zone of some sort. And right there, as soon as he said that, I was like, yeah, I want nothing to do with this. Um, that you're, that you, everyone, this is a mistake I see in the movement all the time, by the way, is people will just, when they first get into it, they're like, 
all the SEC and the government approval, that's the easy part. Like everyone knows that needs to be done. Obviously, that's actually the hardest part. By far the hardest part. People think the capital is the hardest part. People think construction is the hardest part. People think building a community is the hardest. None of those are the hardest part. The hardest part is the government interaction. Um, so this was a heated debate in inside of Prospero and we ended up not pursuing it for the exact reason you just pointed out. You hit the nail on the head. And then the other thing on risk, this is an ongoing debate every, day in and day out within Prospera as it relates to kind of regulatory intensity, right? And, and how to go about regulating. Here's the analogy that we use to kind of govern our thinking on this. Um, at, and this was especially much more true a few years ago before we had a, a lot built and, and uh, a lot of businesses set up and operating in the jurisdiction. At the time, we were like, look, we are effectively, by analogy, like a couple week old baby in the crib, right? Because of that, we can't really take any huge risks on who the first few businesses that set up in the jurisdiction are. Because all it takes is one business, like, and it is this specific, by the way, and, and the mainstream media hates anything like this so much. This is exactly how it will play out. It takes one risky business. Let's imagine it's some sort of crazy prosthetic company, right? I'm, I'm making up something random, but like this isn't an actual, anything that actually happened. But imagine it's like a company that says they have cutting edge, like cybernetic prosthetics. I'm a huge, I'm a transhumanist. I'm a cyberpunk. Like that sounds awesome to me. But all it takes is one person to come down, have their leg replaced, and it gets gangrenous, it gets infected, and they die as a result. That is quite literally going to be page one of New York Times, Washington Post, everybody, Vox, uh, Vice, everybody's going to be talking about it for weeks. And the project is dead at that point. No, no investors are ever going to give you any money. The political actor you were working with now see that you're a crazy libertarian or something stupid like that, and that you actually don't know how to govern. You actually don't have good regulatory structures in place. And you're dead in the water right there. You're dead in the water. Now, as these charter city projects grow, right? So imagine 20 years from now, imagine Prospera has a population of 500,000, GDP, uh, GDP per capita at 50, $60,000, right? Um, uh, several hundred billion in aggregate GDP. At that point, it's less of a threat. You're, not, you're no longer the baby in the crib, right? You're now, uh, by way of, to continue that analogy, by that point, Prospera is a flourishing adult, right? Much harder to, to defeat. It's much different. And again, not that we would ever have like our regulatory structures would ever let that happen. Just making an illustrative example that that risk is a huge issue. But this really, really gets hard because like we've had people, I'll, again, I'm going to be vague, but like we've had people apply to the Prosper Insurance Company to get the regulatory insurance Prosper requires who were doing things that we were like, I, this is usually how it shook out. I was on one side and said, we should probably do this. Like, I think the risk here is fairly low. And then other people within the organization um, were like, no, actually the risk of this is huge. I'm not even saying it'll happen, but, but all it takes is one example of something bad happening on accident even, and the whole project is over. And we end up not doing some of those things. And some of them we do do because the risk reward ratio is on the other side. So to your point, that is one of the like in the weeds, most difficult parts of starting a, frankly, a government from scratch, uh, working within a national government, of course, but like for regulating businesses specifically, building a regulatory environment from scratch, I should say. That balance of enforcement versus laxity versus existential risk to the project is incredibly difficult. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially since, you know, many of these things that we're already doing might seem risky on the outside. But once you know the actors involved and once you know the story behind that, like McDavis, Minicircle, Gene Therapy, like they're using the most conservative therapy that's in used in the market, right? I mean, it is sort of you know, more radical compared to what others are willing to do and going to a different jurisdiction. But, you know, their thinking process behind it is very sound and they're putting the proper safeguards in place. So you want to be, you know, on the one hand, 
sort of not playing by the same or doing the same thing that other risk averse government and other parts of the world are doing. Like that's the whole problem we're trying to fix. But yeah, at the same time, you're still kind of judged from the outside world by the same standards. Something I just keep thinking about, how do we get sort of that PR right, right? I mean, I think the best chance we have is, and I think that's the approach right now, we just focus on people, right? And do the people that come have a sound moral compass. And we also need to make sure collectively, I think you can enforce that centrally all the time, right? Right now, there's pretty much open borders and prosper. Anyone can come, um, but we have to kind of decentrally look out amongst each other, right? So we um, support people that have a very sound moral compass. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I completely agree. And in fact, a project I tried to kind of champion internally that ended up, we ended up not doing for other priorities uh, that I still think is a good idea to scale that is a some sort of like short, but to the point and pithy kind of educational course that basically says, oh, you want to become not an e-resident, but you want to become a legal, physical resident in Prospera. Well, here's a two week long, three week long, whatever. Um, maybe it takes you 10, 15 hours to get through course on like, hey, Here's the intellectual backdrop by which Prospera exists. Here is Prospera's community values, right? And uh, at the end, we'll give you a little quiz on it, whatever. And in fact, this doesn't even matter for whether or not, you, it's not like we're going to grade your quiz and that's going to determine whether or not you get in. The point is to create some sort of formal explicit filtering mechanism, right? Where someone reads that and says, ah, this is not like, I see the values. I see what this is about. Maybe this is cool, but turns out this actually isn't the place for me. And if it's a bad actor, right, they're going to see that and go, okay, cool, like this is a community of like kind of do-gooder type people who are going to be kind of very straight-laced about things, but I don't care, I'm going to try to do bad anyway. Well, now they know that it's going to be very hard for them to do because the community is filled with people on the lookout for bad guys like them. So that in and of itself is a negative signal for them and it creates a kind of, again, not a strong filtering mechanism, but at least somewhat of a filtering mechanism to as we scale and as more people start joining the jurisdiction and moving in, we continue to send a very explicit signal right, of the type of people that we want to attract, people who have their head on straight, who have their morals and ethics, right, to your point, who are not going to hurt people, who are not going to be reckless, and who are going to innovate and create prosperity and create jobs and build cool things in the world, physically especially, um, but without doing it with a screw loose, without doing it with reckless abandon is the, the term I would use. Yeah, yeah. And in doubt, we just grow, you know, not as fast as otherwise, right? But, you know, keep, keep the space clean for sure. Exactly. And maybe, maybe at the last point on this, maybe you grow a little slower, but it's at the trade-off of not getting uh, killed in your infancy, basically. Yeah, so yeah. I think the trade-off is worth it. Yeah, but at the same time, I also feel like that kind of works, right? And it's even without sort of the official messaging or like, I think the people that are coming, like I've never really had a negative experience, right? So, or mm. I shouldn't say never, but you know, not where I would be like worried. Like most people that come to to Prospera or that are interested in our space, like are very, very thoughtful, right? So I meet tons of people now going to want to take positions to Bitcoin versus like Ethereum or Web3 environment. But, um, you know, the people that I think the, the message of, hey, we don't want to be like only like a top down Bitcoin thing is sort of filtering a couple of the Bitcoiners out and keeping a couple of good Bitcoiners in, right? Because fi like, it's fine, it's an open process. It's like you discussed it to Sean in my podcast. Yeah, it's an open process. It's a competition. But at the same time, it also attracts some of the Ethereum, crypto, Web3 people. And I think this is a very thoughtful ecosystem, right? So people are very kind of, um, have a huge diversity of thought and of thinking and are very tolerant of that. I I'm just really amazed 
you know, when I was at East Denver, I'm going to Vitalik Buterin's um, pop-up city in Montenegro. So they're doing like longevity, biotech, Ethereum core development, public goods funding, and these things like that. I'm this, I mean, this is a great community. Like I'm more than glad to have anyone over there almost. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Uh, and to your point, uh, that also was a kind of a heated debate inside of Prospero uh, in terms of our kind of public crypto face, because you have some people internal to the team who are hardcore Bitcoin, uh, like pure Bitcoin maxis, others who are very much not, uh, myself included. Um, so the the diversity of thought, again, it comes back to people at the end of the day, to your point earlier. And that same diversity of thought is just reflected in the team at Prospero. And I, uh, I, I cannot sing the praises of founder and CEO Eric Bremen highly enough. And one of the wonderful things he has done at Prospera is pull together a team of people and by extension of that team, a community of people who are, to your point, thoughtful, humble, uh, filled with humility, a wide array of uh, diversity of viewpoints and opinions, which uh, then manifest itself in the way that we do business in the public policy that gets promulgated by the Prospera Zede and the Prospera Council. Um, I think he's just done an unbelievable job of pulling together a team that can do exactly what you're describing. Yeah, yeah. To shift gears a little bit, I was wondering if you want to discuss Balaji's bet. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I have a very strong mixed feelings on this. I'm curious what, I'm going to give a bit of a hot take on this. I'll be curious to hear yours as well. Go ahead. To his cr extreme credit, okay, he is very good at spreading memes. The network state meme is proof positive of that. And I commend him for it. I also commend him for trying to push the world to uh, use more Bitcoin specifically uh, and crypto more broadly. Like all of that, in my opinion, is just an unmitigated good. I do not think trying to meme us into global financial collapse is the best way to do that. Um, and in fact, like I get where he's coming from. Okay. So I don't want, I don't want to, uh, uh, I somehow sees this. I don't want him to think I'm attacking him at all. Like I get what he's trying to do, which is meme hyper Bitcoinization into reality. I just think he might be so insulated in the circles he's in with the personal wealth he has and the wealth of his friends, uh, in the tech world he's in, he does not understand like the real, like impact on the lived experience of just normal people that a massive financial collapse of the type he is predicting and at the simultaneously trying to meme into existence will cause. And I'll just give a very brief, concrete example. My grandfather uh, ran a, uh, he recently retired, but before that he ran a very small construction subcontracting firm. I did a lot of construction work with him growing up. We did uh, like commercial plumbing, HVAC and, uh, and site works. Okay. And in the 2008 financial crisis, his business came within a hair's breadth of going under. He was within like two weeks of running out of money and just having to start from scratch, basically. We, through whether it be divine intervention or luck or whatever the case may be, we ended up getting a big contract uh, to build a church, funnily enough, right as he was running out of money that saved us, uh, just to put it bluntly. Um, but the misery we went through before that, like the cutbacks we had to do, we had to fire a bunch of people, some of which we were not able to hire back. The misery that that causes for small to medium-sized businesses, it, like in, it's incalculable. It's incalculable, right? It is incredibly intent, the human misery this causes. Uh, and now I'm not saying Balaji alone is going to mean the world into a financial collapse, right? Like the, the conditions for that to even be possible were set up by others. Many of his critiques of the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Uh, financial regulators are spot on. I'm not disagreeing with the, the substance of any or much of what he's saying, really. But I do think that like memes matter, right? Ideas matter, especially on social media in 2023. And it's entirely possible because the stuff he's saying is attracting a lot of attention. Like he got a formal response from Twitter handle, no opinion. Uh, it's a, a Bloomberg columnist, right? A lot of very important people read Bloomberg columns. So like I could see the possibility for this meme scaling in a bad way very quickly. 
uh, and then resulting in a bank run and then resulting in the financial collapse that he is indeed predicting, which again, I view as while it might be good for Bitcoin and good for Balaji specifically or other people, it'd be good for me specifically, right? Like I, I hold some Bitcoin I have for years, right? It'd be great for me personally, financially, but like that doesn't mean I want it to happen. Um, and in fact, I would, I hope and pray that he is deeply, deeply wrong. Yeah. I mean, I'm very torn on the question. I mean, it's just a bit of background. So Balaji um, made a public bet with, so he's betting on hyperinflation in the United States. It's actually a bit complicated. So he's not technically betting on hyperinflation. He's actually betting on Bitcoin being valuable more than 1 million. So he could have hyperinflation, even though it doesn't go up that much, right? So he's taking a, like a really unlikely scenario, right? So, and he bets like a million dollars against one Bitcoin that will be more than 1 million, right? So instead of the um, probabilities behind that, whether he's going to win or going to lose, don't matter that much. He's saying in his own words that this is just a uh, wake up signal, right? So it's very clearly trying to make this world happen where the US dollar is losing its value and Bitcoin is becoming the store of value and the hatching its inflation. One very small thing to add, Nicholas, and then I want you to continue describing it, is that he mm -hmm. said within 90 days. The time frame is important here. Exactly, within 90 days. Right, so that's important. Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of torn, right? So I'm agreeing that a Bitcoin store of value world is more desirable, right? So, and the faster we go there, the better. I think that will be financially more sound. Right. I do think that, you know, the fractional reserve banking system is doing a lot of damage, right? So a lot of what you're describing, you know, the system is already doing it. It's just, we don't question it as much because what choice do we have, right? So there is a few people with a lot of power who are making these decisions um, that we're basically beholden to, like whatever you decide, you know, if we trust you, that's what's going to happen. That often has um, or could likely very have in the very negative outcomes, right? So I think it's less about the, whether Balaji will, if the prediction will ring true or not, rather than the reasoning behind it, right? So I think these are very important things to think about. Like one thing that, one fact that is not much talked about in the debate that, that frustrates me a bit is why was Silicon Valley so dependent on one bank in the first place? Right. So if you look at the approval of new FDIC insured banks, it's down 98% since 2008, since the financial crisis. So the Dodd-Frank banking regulations have basically made it harder to do a bank to do competition, right? In a more competitive market, in a place like Silicon Valley, where people are constantly look at what else is a problem, you know, I think that's very credible that we've gotten sort of a more diversified portfolio of risk, uh, many, many different banks. I mean, you have Mercury, which I think is a very good bank, one of the rare ones. But people in the United States often don't realize how bad banking is in the United States. Like the software banking experience, the software is like from the 90s, right? Still coded, uh, much of it's coded on COBOL. Like the safeguards, everything behind that is just completely ossified. So I think that part of the critique is really true. And well, how do we get people to see that? How do we get things to change, right? Right now, you have this perpetual circle of, you know, the government, the Federal Reserve is causing a problem, right? And then it's coming in to fix it, like blaming the problem on capitalism and in the process, making it even worse. Right. And if that story holds true and it seems true to me, Hey, that was the story 2008 and afterwards the banking system got more centralized because of the government's own actions. Now we're kind of are more exposed to the risk of large scale financial collapse, not because of Balaji, but 
because of the decisions made by the Federal Reserve and by the um, U.S. government and several other decisions that were made, right? So Balaji is, you know, people on the sides that don't agree with Balaji, including Noah Smith or Ezra Klein, like these are very thoughtful commentators. I think there's a couple of assumptions that I don't share, but these are thoughtful commentators with good intentions. Um, they perceive Balaji as powerful. They're like, oh, Silicon Valley and Peter Thiel, they have all this power and they have all these Twitter followers. And that's also the point where I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, this is, you know, tech is still a small share of the, the, old, the whole industry, right? And we're talking about like one regional bank in Silicon Valley. How can you imagine that they have so much power and it's like, oh, they're doing this now because it's in their own interest. So I'm definitely not that sympathetic to that argument. So I'm, so I'm kind of a bit torn, but I still do want to understand their side, right? So maybe we can steelman a bit sort of the, the other side of it, right? So can you help me steelman that a bit? I absolutely can. Um, so first to just clarify on your point, I agree with, uh, as I mentioned earlier, and I'll just reiterate, I substantially agree with effectively all of Balaji's uh, criticism of the current situation. And to your point, I also agree with his diagnosis of the problem, the reason we're even this close to the possibility of that type of collapse happening at all is completely the Federal Reserve's fault and and some financial regulators fault. I mean, I'll give you but one example. And again, I'm ripping this straight from Balaji's recent arguments on this, but um, the Federal Reserve publishes their own like kind of predictions of interest rates over time. And they also set the rates. So the same people that are making publishing future predictions about, hey, here's what we expect rates to be like over the next while, next several years so that businesses can play around it. Uh, they also are the ones that set the rate. So you would think they'd be good at predicting them, but they're not. What happened here, and the whole reason this happened is because rates suddenly and drastically spiked, like massively spiked. That wasn't even predicted by the Federal Reserve System themselves. So like they violated their own predictions. And that's the reason that uh, this, this collapse was even possible in the first place. Also, it's a very brief, small point. I just want to add because I'm sure other people had this question. I was trying to figure out why the heck did so many startups use this specific bank? It doesn't make any sense. Um, it was two things I found out like, and this is just small little factual detail that I just found interesting. One, uh, they would allow you to form a company with, without having very strong proof of a physical corporate address. They let you use, um, uh, registered agents and things like that. Cause a lot of modern tech companies are fully remote. Learn Arena included. This is exactly what we did too, right? Where we're banking with Mercury, but same thing. We have a registered agent in Delaware cause we're a Delaware C Corp. Um, so Silicon Valley Bank, Mercury, there's only like a handful that will even let you open a bank account under those circumstances. So that just automatically means like, well, shoot, most tech companies have like two or three options. And then two, what Silicon Valley Bank would often do is if you had a funding round and then that funding round, you uh, banked uh, that capital with Silicon Valley Bank, as soon as your round closed, they would follow up with an offer for venture debt from Silicon Valley Bank immediately. And it was usually on pretty good terms, like uh, prime interest rate and uh, a balloon payment in 18 to 24 months. Right. And they, it would usually be like it would be between 25 to 50 percent of the round. So for a lot of founders in high growth, high revenue tech companies, this was just like free money, like almost completely free money. Uh, so for anyone else that was curious, like why the heck does everyone bank with Silicon Valley Bank? That's why they, you get free money and you could do it legally. Uh, now, to your point and to Steelman, the kind of case against Balaji's case, um, the the Ezra Klein's of the world would claim it was a lack of banking regulation. And it was in particular, the ability of banks to be very promiscuous with risk management policies, with the loans that they were giving out and the way they were bundling and collateralizing those loans that led to the 2008 financial crisis. 
I'm not ahead, sure yeah. even that Ezra Klein would say that, right? So I'm trying to make sense of it because I think Ezra Klein is also increasingly critical about many of these government regulations. So he's talking about housing, he's talking about nimbyism and, and these kinds of things. So I think he's increasingly aware of that. I think where the different assumption is, is he looks at tech and it's like, these are small things. This is like software, right? This is, right? So what he cares about, what he wants to build is like, a big things like he wants to fix housing, he wants to fix health care, like we do, right? And she doesn't come from tech, he doesn't think tech can do that, right? We come from tech, we've seen examples like that, we think it's possible. But on the other hand, he's also a bit true, like we haven't fixed these big problems, right? And we're constrained to software. And our analysis is, right, so the regulations don't allow tech to fix things. And his analysis is these regulations don't allow government to fix big things. So he thinks that big government is good, right? It's not that the regulations are good. The regulations right now are holding back big government, right? That's true. Although I think, um, I think people like Ezra and other kind of more, what I'll call mainstream commentators, right? Do still, um, and Noah Smith being a good example of this, even Tyler Cowen to some extent, he published about this recently, like think some of these financial regulations are still a good thing. So like while they've come around on housing regulation, they've come around on a few other areas of regulation, uh, healthcare reform it, to some extent. Uh, the last kind of area of the economy, they're still like, oh no, it's good that we, uh, for lack of a better term, it's good that we regulate the hell out of this and we should, is finance. Um, so I do think that does play a fairly critical role here. I mean, I've seen some commentators in the in the uh, collapse of Silicon Valley Bank say, well, this was the fault of, we, we don't have tight enough risk management regulations, management around or regulations around risk management in banks like this. And in fact, this is the reason why we can't allow a bunch of new banks is because they'll all be like Silicon Valley Bank and have wacky risk management policies that end up collapsing in the first place, which obviously like the argument defeats itself because the, this the lack of competition is what allows banks to uh, operate extremely inefficiently and still continue to exist. That and the moral hazard created by, by bailouts. Uh, but the other claim that I saw, and this is more of a mechanistic claim, Tyler Cowen made this one too, and again, just steel manning their argument, which is basically like, look, if a bank like Silicon Valley Bank or others detonates and 97% of depositors are uninsured or whatever the percentage, well, I think it was 97% at Silicon Valley Bank had, were completely uninsured, uh, then that money just disappears. A bunch of like tens of thousands of people lose their jobs. Uh, individual people lose all of their wealth that they built up over time. So it's not really going to cause any inflation to on a one-off basis whenever these banks fail. Literally just, uh, and it, all it amounts to is like replacing entries on a digital ledger, an, elect an electronic ledger, a spreadsheet somewhere, right? Um, just replace those amounts, like the Fed is wiring them the money, but really they're just replacing the money that was just lost. Um, doesn't result in inflation because it's just a replacement of the money that was there that just got wiped out. Now this creates a massive moral hazard and other things, but this was an argument from from Tyler Cowan a few days ago, I believe, that was still manning this Ezra Klein view that's like, look, this is harmless. Like, who cares? Uh, it just isn't that big of a deal. And pointedly, it's not going to lead to Balaji-esque hyperinflation because it's just replacing money that was there temporarily disappeared for a bunch of reasons that we think are the government's fault. Um, and because it didn't create any new money, it's the same money that was there, no harm, no foul. But the, the money supply didn't increase. Yeah, I get that. So I'm sometimes try to be humble about these things when it comes to, you know, oh, how much does the money supply need to increase to really have, like so many predictions of hyperinflation have been wrong. Right? So- I, Hey, I, I will fess up to that too. I was one of those people like 2009, 2010, like, this quantitative easing is going to cause hyperinflation for sure. I was like a hardcore Misesian at the time. Just totally wrong. Totally yeah, wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Um, at the same time, 
you know, these are just very powerful arguments. Ray Dalio said, right? So these crises happen, you know, first gradually, then suddenly. So with the system, how it's currently set up and with the ability to constantly print money and it continuously happening, the Misesian point or the point that, you know, inflation is almost, it's everywhere a monetary phenomenon, you know, at some point it's going to happen. I mean, the vector is going that direction. So the question kind of is when from that point of view, right? So I think you're setting yourself up for failure if you're trying to predict it precisely every and every time and it, you know, reduces your credibility. But is it going to happen at some point, you know, within the next one year, five years, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years? I mean, I'm almost certain within the next 100 years, 50 years. Yeah. Within the next 10 years, rather high confidence. Is it going to happen this year? Rather low confidence, but... Yeah, I think the the classic, to zoom out a little bit, the classic Econ 101 point here, right, uh, from Milton Friedman, which is basically like, uh, if the money supply increases relative, holding all else constant, then by definition, the value of any individual piece of money has to decrease. Like that is just basic Econ 101 kind of supply and demand reasoning. Now, people try to dance circles around this with all sorts of arguments about the velocity of money, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I think that core argument does indeed remain true. The buck can be passed for a very long time, but like eventually you have to stop kicking the can down the road or you just lose the ability to kick the can. Um, so I think that initial reasoning is right, but I'll be honest and I'll admit some uh, maybe stupidity, maybe intellectual humility here, or maybe a combination of the two. After I was so wrong, after studying monetary policy in college and was so wrong about the uh, expected hyperinflation after all of the quantitative easing and and monetary policy post 2008, 2008 financial crisis, I just kind of threw my hands up with monetary policy. Like, look, this is, uh, this is wizardry. This is dark magic. No one on earth understands how it works. And uh, I hope things don't collapse while I'm trying to build a startup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I wish also for this not to happen, or if it happens, then it happens kind of orderly and by people from within the system and, you know, that's also a fair chance. Why not work to what that seeing the, what seems to me very obvious advantages of building a financial system that's more decentralized, that has right now, I would definitely say Bitcoin as a stored value. I bought Bitcoin. I think it's the salient, um, the salient store of value and the saliency is something that people underestimate. Even if there's like other people get caught up on like technical reasons why something else should better be the store of value or whatever. So I'm like, yeah, the system's better. So let's, you know, work together. Let's transition peacefully towards the system, right? So have existing institutions sort of transfer over from yet to crypto. I think that is what we should work towards for sure. Is Balaji's way to do it the right way to do it? I don't know. I'm not at a level where I feel I have enough sort of knowledge or confidence or FU money to pull that kind of moves. <laughs> right. Right. I'm setting myself up so financially to, you know, hedge against different cases. And I think everyone should do the same thing, right? Listen to these arguments. And, you know, argument is, yeah, future with crypto is underpinning the global financial system would certainly be better. So at some point you should divest into crypto for sure. Okay. It's time to educate yourself, learn about crypto. Like a lot of your personal wealth is sort of tied to these questions, these are the questions of our time, right? Yep, that's exactly right. And to your point, I think a world that runs on uh, specifically Bitcoin financial rails, where Bitcoin is the kind of reserve currency, the, the settlement layer. So uh, 
uh, Safetyn's book, The Bitcoin Standard, is the best book on Bitcoin, in my opinion. And if anybody wants to understand, like, well, what does a Bitcoin world look like? Like in very concrete, granular, specific terms, go pick up The Bitcoin Standard by uh, Safetyn. Uh, I can't pronounce his last name. I think it's Amos. Um, yeah. Fantastic book. In the last chapter there, he talks about Bitcoin as a settlement layer, basically, because the Bitcoin core, like the actual base layer of Bitcoin, uh, the blockchain itself, can't facilitate that many transactions. Layer two solutions can facilitate an effectively infinite number of transactions. Um, but because of that, the core layer, the base layer ends up just becoming a settlement layer between banks. And then layer two is what we actually use for our day-to-day -day interactions. I think that world is just a better world in like every conceivable way. The state can no longer track transactions anywhere nearly as effectively. Everything is safer, more secure, more smooth. Uh, the value of the money actually is much more stable over time. So I agree with you completely uh, on that front. And I also think to Balaji's point as well, something we haven't mentioned, I'll just very briefly mention, which is um, we also need to be very wary of all of this kind of hype and energy toward uh, adopting crypto and hyper-Bitcoinization being effectively co-opted by central governments trying to do um, central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. Those are terrifying to me, like deeply terrifying, because they would extend a level of financial control to the state that is hard to fathom for people. Like, I don't think it, if you think about this for more than like 10 or 15 minutes, it should be like one of the most frightening prospects for the near future, in my opinion, because it gives the state a, uh, uh, to use a computer science analogy, right? It gives the state like root level access to all finance, full stop, like all finance. They'd be able to track every single transaction that anyone ever does to remotely turn off your money, freeze your money, stop you from doing specific things. Some of the politically motivated actions we've seen from the Department of Justice, like lobbying PayPal and others to stop letting gun companies process transactions through PayPal and others, that no longer has to happen through a lobbying arm and public controversy pressuring PayPal into doing it. In a CBDC world, they just turn off the gun store's bank account. They literally just delete it. So that world is terrifying as well. And I think Balaji is also bringing attention to that prospect and the negatives of that prospect with this kind of bet. So again, I think if he doesn't, uh, and then I'll, last thing I'll say on this, if he doesn't meme us into a financial crisis, then this was an unmitigated great idea as, as Balaji usually is full of. Uh, if we can plausibly say that he did somehow meme us into a financial crisis on accident, I just don't think the risk was worth the reward, um, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. But just to... Um, put that there that I think the vector is going in the right direction. So directionally, I definitely agree with Balaji and I kind of withhold judgment from whether or not it's worth taking that bet or risk or what's sort of what the risk reward is. I just don't know, right? I'm no, nope. it's but, all, it's all black magic. Yeah. Yeah. But in any case, yeah, yeah. But in any case, so part of the world's that is running on Bitcoin and some more centralized financial system is also running on self-education, right? So that's something I mentioned, sort of look at these things, educate yourself. Part of an anti-fragile world is people being able to think for themselves and adjudicate risks and being able to make decisions that you ultimately bear responsibility for, right? I think that's the best way to learn, to navigate the modern world, right? These questions aren't always black and white. You can't rely on governments to provide you the right answers. You can't rely on Balaji to give you the right answers. So you have to think for you and educate yourself, coupled with sort of epistemic rationality that I think many, many people are saying, oh, you know, you shouldn't trust experts. That's clearly wrong, right? So you should trust experts, but at the same time, looking at their biases, right? And at the same time, kind of looking at sort of the reasoning that they give, right? So you can't expect from anyone to just always know better or look behind um, anything that they say or do. 
but, you know, treat it with a sense of skepticism, right? Sort of learn the tools of making your own decisions and, um, and educating yourself. Let's talk about education in a free society. Why don't you, do you want to set up and frame the debate for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so education is kind of a bedrock of uh, cultural development, obviously, uh, and to, to state the obvious there. But the, the debate you're referencing is effectively as follows. Uh, I'm going to give stylized versions of both sides, which I think it'll, listeners will immediately know which side we fall on. Um, there's one group of people that says parents don't know how to educate their children. They're not trained teachers. They're not trained subject matter experts. And they're not even able to make decisions about the experts who should be educating their children. And as a result of that, it is society writ large. And what they mean by that is the government specifically. It is the government's job and responsibility to ensure that there is a well-educated, well-trained populace to be more economically productive, to participate in civil society, to vote, to participate in democracy. And that for all of these reasons, it's important that the state have a very strong hand in guiding and directing and setting those educational policies, both how the education occurs and what is being taught, and that parents and other institutions simply do not know enough and are not properly situated to, to make those decisions for children or to educate those children. There's another side of this, uh, the other side of this debate says effectively the exact opposite of that, which is that education is a market just like anything else. Uh, there's no inherent reason why education has to be different from any other uh, transaction or market in the entire world. We agree on the premise that it is important to have a well-educated populace, but we uh, utterly disagree on the mechanism by which we do that. First of all, the, the kind of our side of the debate, obviously, uh, is do not claim to know what should be taught on any given situation to any given student that we have the, the ultimate answer to pedagogy. That will be a forever, that'll be a perennial human question until someone figures out how to just upload things straight to people's minds. Nor do we claim to know exactly what institutional structure for educational institutions is going to be most optimal. What we do know is that the market should figure it out and entrepreneurs specifically should figure it out and competition should figure it out and free choice for parents and for people who are trying to educate themselves for autodidacts. Maximizing the number of educational options for people, for parents, for children, for autodidacts is the way, the, in fact, it's the only effective way, I would argue, to actually ensure that a populace is well-educated. And it drastically reduces the amount of political friction and culture warring in the world writ large anyway, because instead of us fighting over diversity, equity, and inclusion or critical race theory in public schools, uh, in a world I'm describing, like you want your kid to be educated in DEI, more power to you. Send them to a school or put them in an online course or put them in a homeschooling curriculum, put them in a Montessori. Uh, there's all sorts of options. Put them in one of the options that teaches that. Totally fine. If you are think DEI is the devil and critical theory is the devil, put them in a school that doesn't teach that. Put them in an educational institution that doesn't teach that. But maximizing the number of options available and maximizing the choices to consumers and maximizing the freedom of entrepreneurs to innovate around education is, the I think, the, the clear, correct answer here. And one final point on this, and I'll let you respond and take it in whatever direction you want, Nicholas. A lot of people, when I kind of talk about this, think I'm exaggerating when I say that public school officials, like school superintendents and politicians on the other side of the debate will claim like, oh, teachers and parents don't actually know what's best for their kids. They will expressly, directly say that in those words and do all the time. I just saw a tweet, not like right before we started this podcast, 
where some politician in one of the U.S. states was saying exactly that, that, you know, these parents, they're just, they, they don't have the, they're not educated enough and they don't have the requisite knowledge to be able to decide where to send their kids. So like, of course we have to decide for them. This is a very regular talking point from the, the pro public school people, basically. So I don't want people thinking I'm exaggerating there. Like that just is the state of affairs. Yeah. Um, when I think about education, it's just, it's just too big to know to where to even start sometimes. I think one thing that frustrates me about it is we have made this departure point where we're saying, okay, you can do your public schools, you go to it and you have the free choice to pursue private options. So there's a lot of a number of spaces where, where we can do that, right? In the United States, at least in Germany, well, Germany is also private schools and Montessori school, whatever. So that's kind of what we want, right? So we want these, this kind of departure, you have options, you have choice, but then the frustrating thing is, well, as a taxpayer, you still pay for public schools, right? So you're competing basically with free as sort of any private option. And this is just a very frustrating feature about the market. One of these examples where sort of not having consistency is leading to a worse, similar to health. Right. So you have kind of the confluence of private and public options that kind of sabotage each other in these ways. That's kind of how I look at education, because for any private education organization that wants to do things better, you're competing with free, right? So you have a very, very high threshold you have to meet. And it's just not many entrepreneurs are capable or it's very hard to do. And then people are saying, oh, see, the private options aren't better than the public options. And I, I just feel like that my arguments then also get very weak. <laughs> yeah, it's very frustrating. I completely agree with you. And also to clarify, a lot of people don't realize this. I didn't even realize this until we uh, started focusing on Learn Arena. Like I can't call Learn Arena a school anywhere because I would immediately run into a massive morass of regulation. Now, a lot of people don't realize this because it's all at the state level, surprisingly. There is no federal regulation about like school accreditation or anything like that. It is all at the state Department of Education level which means it's way worse for uh, across the board, more or less, because there's just less at stake. So there's less scrutiny. It's really, really bad. So I can't, for example, call the arena school without going through these arcane accreditation processes that are uh, archaic, uh, were meant for pre-internet schools entirely, um, cost a ton of money to comply with, subject to uh, drastic alterations to our curriculum, the materials we provide, how we do it. Like if I were to try to uh, call the arena school, Right. Let's imagine let's let's fast forward like a year or two where I have a, even enough courses to actually plausibly say that I still wouldn't do it and still can't because it's illegal. Because if I did, I'd have to effectively completely demolish my own business model and, and what we not only business model, but what we stand for. Uh, so there's just a lot of regulations in the way of even getting to getting started in schools at all. And then on your point about competing with free, that that is frustrating. But there's this great kind of middle ground solution I strongly support that sometimes it's called school vouchers. Sometimes it's, it's called education savings accounts, ESAs. And those are basically where uh, we still, taxpayers still pay, uh, pay money, usually at the state level. Let me pause. Common misconception. A lot of people think like schools in uh, poor areas underperform and the students do worse on tests because they're underfunded. That's literally the opposite of true. Oftentimes the minority schools in very poor areas and urban areas receive up to 5x the funding of schools in other areas. My favorite example of this, right, is like schools in Utah receive 5x less funding than schools in New York City, and they perform exactly the same. Um, so like funding is not the problem, and uh, funding for education is no longer local, it's at the state level. So just point of clarification there. Now, this money for these ESAs or vouchers, whatever the case may be, 
the problem is like at no point is this actually anything approximating a free market. So I looked into this very, like in the last week, uh, I was like, all right, let me check on again ESAs because they exist in Mississippi and Alabama and a few other places where I have some team members. Um, and I said, I wonder, can we like get ESA money to educate students, right? Well, turned out I can't because you have to be within this very stringent regulatory environment, get accredited by this one very specific, actually private and for-profit accreditation entity that the states usually point to for whatever reason that I would never in a million years comply with. It would take me, it would probably cost me five, $6 million to comply with these things. And it would destroy my business model. Again, I can't do it. Um, so uh, the, the kind of part of what you just said, I want to challenge, and I only learned this like being an entrepreneur in this space is again, the same story you and I have heard a million times over. I'm experiencing firsthand yet again, the morass of regulation around trying to innovate in this space is unfathomably huge. Um, that's why you see like pockets of things, right? Like you have LearnArena and e-learning platforms in general. You have like kind of Montessori schools. You have some specific homeschooling setups, but they're all drastically constrained by trying to skirt around regulation. Um, and there's a bunch of stuff I would love to do, LearnArena, right? That I can't do precisely because of this morass of regulation. So not only are you competing with free, and, and again, ESAs and vouchers are at least a good middle ground to get started in the right direction, but those are highly controversial, right? Progressives hate them. Um, but not only are you competing with free, you're also competing with effectively both hands and one foot tied behind your back. Uh, it, it's impossible. So yeah, when people say, oh, well, there, there are some private options and they're not that much better. Well, that's because they can't be. They're not allowed to be. Yeah, it's just, it's just so frustrating to always tap into the same story. Let's talk about what's at stake here when it comes to education, right? How would you think about the problems that the United States is facing when it comes to education or more broadly that we're facing when it comes to education? What are we missing out on or where are we, where are we failing? Yeah, I have some very strong thoughts on this. So give me, let me, let me go through a few points here. I, I'm working in education now. I have just become generally horrified at how valueless how aesthetically displeasing and how just bad, like generally how bad all of it is. So I'll walk you through like a few of these points. So first on the kind of aesthetically displeasing point, um, I do think there's at least some sort of, this is a philosophical point. I'll just leave hanging out there. I don't want to, I don't want to chase this tangent, but um, I think there is a lot of value in things being aesthetically pleasing. There's some relationship between the good, like capital G good and aesthetics to some extent. And I'll give you an example of what is making this super salient for me. And I'm very passionate about um, we went to South by Southwest EDU, uh, just a couple of weeks ago as a company and our booth was probably the most popular booth there close to it, uh, in the expo hall, because we stood out so strongly from an aesthetics perspective, we kind of combined like this, uh, appreciation for ancient Roman and Greek, uh, architecture and statues and that kind of raw beauty with a more cyberpunk kind of futuristic vibe and bent. And we, we combined those two aesthetic styles, styles into something that's while there's a lot of room to be improved, it's at least not bad. And then you walk around the expo hall and you compare that to every other booth. And it's all corporate Memphis art style, which if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's that horrendous, in my mind, disturbing, hor aesthetically horrendous art style that you see every major company and especially in education use where it's like these weirdly proportioned flat 2D figures that are like orange and blue and green and everyone's agender and everyone doesn't have an ethnicity. And it's just like silly cartoonish stuff. It's also called, uh, this is a great subreddit, hating it called, uh, our, our Algeria, our Algeria art. Another art style is very similar that I'm a huge fan of. Um, it's all terrible. It's all terrible. It, it genuinely, genuinely all looks incredibly bad. And this is important because 
uh, this is what kids grow up around. So they don't have a sense of aesthetics. They don't have a sense. They don't, they're not exposed to things that are beautiful in the world. Uh, the same goes for value. So uh, in a lot of modern educational material is just completely valueless. And this is the result of the fact that it's extremely political, right? So um, educational institutions are constantly, especially in the U.S., uh, being attacked for both the left and the right. And, and for once, I, I, I really am, uh, I, I've said a lot of bad things about the left here, but I, I could say just as many bad things about the kind of right-wing culture warriors as well. And this is one area where they have just drastically screwed things up. Schools are constantly under attack by especially right-wing culture warriors trying to dictate precisely what is taught, when, how, et cetera. So what that results in is educational institutions afraid to do or teach anything at all. Like you can't, as a teacher, teach students what 99% of the world would agree is the good, right? Because either some right-wing culture warrior is going to say that it was too secular and that's against their religious practices, or left-wing culture warrior is going to say the entire idea of objectivity versus subjectivity is wrong and you should just be teaching them that moral relativism is the truth. Um, so all of this culminates in a generation of students who the only way they get exposed to truth, in my opinion, like correct information, is by seeking it out themselves. It's part of the inspiration for me uh, starting Learn Arena, uh, which was that uh, a lot of the existing e-learning platforms only do like coding or coding-related things. Um, and we're offering courses in it. We wanna, we want, we're trying to help craft polymaths. We want people to be maximally impactful in the world and uh, to learn as much as they can about as much as they can so that they can be maximally impactful in the world. So we offer courses on everything from in, like formal logic, uh, ethics, uh, introduction to theology, economics, whole nine yards, right? We offer courses in effectively every subject area. And this is only expanding like week by week. Um, and the reason for that was precisely because like there's just no sources of truth of good material on a lot of those subjects anywhere else in the world outside of their schools. And then the school material is so grotesque, so valueless and often long. Um, this is another thing like even right wing culture warriors in this particular respect don't go far enough, which is that like a lot of the textbooks are written by like staunch leftist ideologues. Uh, and this is just taught as fact in schools. I remember reading some things sort of my junior, senior year of high school when I was starting to do a bunch of independent reading, going back and reading some of my textbooks. And I was like, oh, wow, this is just super biased. And I didn't even realize it because I didn't know what the counterfactual, I didn't know there were other sides to this argument, right? The content is also terrible. And then on actual pedagogy, education is somehow simultaneously too easy and too hard. Right? And it is resulting in a mass and rapidly growing wave of youth suicides, youth depression, youth anxiety uh, spectrum disorders. Um, and here's what I mean by too easy and too hard. It's too easy in the sense that because the educational material is so watered down, because so many people in the education space are ideologically captured uh, and refuse to acknowledge that there are differences in intellectual and academic capability amongst people. I know that sounds crazy, but like me saying that makes me a heretic in the education industry, which I don't care. We're, we're already that by our branding, but like just saying that some people are going to do better than others is a absolutely heretical statement. So because of all of that, um, they hate actually assigning any sort of objective metrics. That's why we see the drastic grade inflation. So the school itself becomes way too easy because the kids know they can fail. And because of this kind of ideological background noise, their teacher is not going to fail them. No one's going to get in trouble for it because if they do, they'll be called racist and uh, uh, whatever the term du jour of the time is for, for the left-wing activists to throw at them. Um, and the teachers also know if they uh, stray too far into trying to teach things that might be controversial amongst the kind of right-wing culture warriors, well, now their senator is going to be calling them and their senator is going to be calling a press conference about how evil this particular teacher at this particular school is, and they're going to be getting death threats. So what does that result in? That results in kids being educated in nothing at all. 
I am not exaggerating. People don't believe me when I tell this story. I wish I could find my high school records. I had 62 absences my senior year of high school, and I had a 4.2 GPA, including a couple AP classes. That's how easy school is. I'm not like w- hyper smart or anything like that. Like there were kids in my grade that were way smarter than me. School's just that easy. So it's too easy on one respect, but it's also too hard in another respect. And that is that we've taught these kids that the only way, the only path to a like lucrative, fruitful life is graduate high school, best grades you can, get as many extracurriculars as you can so that you can get into your top choice school, your top choice university. And then you get a four-year university degree. And then you get a three-year master's degree, an MBA or a doctorate degree. And then you go get some job in some middle management in in a corporation somewhere. You make low to mid six figures and you live a happy life. And that is the only path to success. That's the path to success that we have pushed for literally everyone, right? Uh, And we all know that is demonstrably false. But the problem is now on the, and this is where I say school is too hard. The kids don't know that, right? They're listening to what their teachers and their parents are telling them. And they're like, oh man, I have to be like head of the student. I have to be president of the student body association. And I have to spin up a completely fake and not real nonprofit so I can put it on my uh, college application. I have to play six sports. They're exhausted. They're tired. They don't get to be kids. They don't get the slack to explore, to learn, to live, to be honest. parents too. Yeah, it's a torture on parents too. You're exactly right. So we, we see this in the data. Jonathan Haidt recently published a great Substack article about this, but like we see it in the data and a big issue here uh, and the data shows that like these students are depressed at a much higher rate. They're committing suicide at a much higher rate. In fact, I saw a study the other day that was so shocking. I had to uh, like, it's one of those, you ever see a study Nicholas that has a chart that like the whole paper could have just been a picture of the chart. This is one of those. The chart was just uh, stu- suicides of kids aged 13 to 18 by month on any given average over the last, I think it was a couple, last couple of decades. And you could see the rate was super hot, like higher than you would have ever expected for the months the school is in. You hit May, it plummets, stays flat all the way until school kids back off in August where it bikes again. And that is the exact pattern, has the same dip around Christmas break. Like school is a suicide factory for kids. And it's because of this. It's because it's simultaneously too easy and too hard. And the kids are being sold a false bill of goods. And they don't, they're not even told that there is any other alternatives. Now, luckily, a lot of parents are starting to wake up to this. Uh, a lot of people are starting to wake up to this. It's, again, that's why we're building Learn Arena. There's a large audience of people who are like, no, I want to go my own way. Like, there's enough stories of, of people like, like my friend behind me that I'm working, here working with JC, right? Like, he has to have a college degree and he has a, a great high paying job uh, at doing a great uh, software engineering job for a major like Fortune 500 company, right? No college degree. Like, a lot of kids don't realize you can just do that. You can just teach yourself to learn a valuable skill and enter the market. You get to skip the whole hundred grand in debt and party for four years rigmarole, right? Um, so I'll pause there. Feel free to respond to any or all of those, but I have very strong uh, feelings on and, and explanations for why American education is so deeply broken in so many ways. Is there anything, any play that we can do in Prospera to improve on education? I've thought about this a lot. Um, the problem is education is so local, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Prospera is doing what it can already, which is there's a Montessori school with higher ground education set up in Prospera. Um, that is teaching the the students there. So like being an example of a better way to do it is a good first step. And that's exactly what's going on in Prospero right now. Um, but the problem is like education is so local and the regulations are so local. It's that point about internationalization of regulations I mentioned earlier. This is a different form of it, which is you could have a perfect school set up in Prospero in the more permissive regulatory environment. And then even in Honduras, if you go out, step outside of Prospero and try to open that same school elsewhere in Roatan, you can't because the Honduran, this sounds crazy, but this is how bad regulations are in Honduras and why they need Prospera and other, and uh, Ciudad Mortezan and others that is. You step outside of Roatan, I mean, outside of Prospera into greater Roatan and you want to start a school. 
every single one of their teachers has to have graduated from UNAH, the National Autonomous University of Honduras, with a degree in education. Can't have been trained anywhere else or have any other degree. What? Yeah, You're, it's insane. It's completely insane. So that's what I mean about the locality of regulation makes education particularly hard to fix remotely. I think the way we fix education, and again, why I'm, I'm uh, so passionate about and doing what I am with Learn Arena, is we just genuinely start building better alternatives. Let me sketch out kind of a future for you. Um, this, this will require me to give me like just two or three minutes to talk about Learn Arena a bit specifically, just so I can tell you what I mean with a concrete example. So over time, what we want to do is develop curricula that are kind of clustered and courses that are kind of clustered around specific career paths that don't need any formal schooling at all. You can do the whole thing through Learn Arena. Phase two of the company, we're going to launch a career placement program. My co-founder is a uh, was chief data scientist at a couple of fairly big like Series B, Series C startups, data science wizard. So what he's going to do is he's building a machine learning algorithm to basically uh, take in for only for the students that voluntarily opt into the career placement program, privacy sake, students that opt into it, we're collecting as much data on them as is physically possible. Like how long do they spend on a course? How many courses do they take simultaneously? Even like kind of over time as we uh, deploy our chat elements within the, within the uh, uh, platform, like what is the general sentiment of their communications? Are they mean to other students or do they seem conscientious? Are they helpful? Are they friendly, et cetera? And then we'll sell access to that career placement database to companies. So if you're a company, say, looking for a JavaScript engineer and with one point arena, once we kind of hit our full stride and, and fully at scale, you can just go sort our users by JavaScript, click the one that has the most skill mastery points, kind of like experience points in a video game, Select the one that has the most skill mastery points in JavaScript. See exactly what courses he or she has taken, uh, what was taught in those courses. See the code they submitted for the final skill challenges to see how they actually solve problems. What other courses have they taken? What is their conscientiousness score? What is their kind of teamwork score? What is their friendliness score? So we're quantifying as much of human capital as possible. So you can see kind of an end state here where we have built a whole pathway, soup to nuts, that an enterprising student, a driven student, with the help of their parents or whoever else, could skip that entire rigmarole I just talked about through the college, postgraduate, uh, corporate job hierarchy. They can uh, eschew that path entirely, put that same amount of time and energy into Learn Arena, uh, and get the career and the job of their dreams while learning in a much more effective way and potentially even literally make a profit along the way. Like you could imagine a student, a young student at Learn Arena from an underprivileged family with nothing but a laptop and $20 to his or her name to start off with, making a profit on that first course, reinvesting it into more courses. At the end of the day, let's say three, four years from then, they land a job making a ton of money developing the next generation of GPT for OpenAI, and they did it all through Learn Arena, and they made money doing it. At no point did they lose any money, right? Um, so it's a whole new pathway, and I, I lay that out fully, not just to show Learn Arena, but to say, like, anyone doing that type of thing, right, a soup-to-nuts replacement of the current pathway that these students are taught, this is the only way to have a successful life. But we need to build as many effective alternatives to that as is humanly possible. And the more we build, the more momentum grows, the more this becomes, and this is critical because culture, culture matters more than almost anything else. When this becomes a cultural norm, like when the first question you ask somebody when you're in your early 20s and you meet them is not like, oh, where did you go to school? But instead it's like, oh, what do you do, right? Once we have culturally made a norm that it's not the only way or the normal way to go to college and then do other things, that you use one of these other pathways, that's when we'll have succeeded. And the only way we do that is by doing it. Let me give you another example of this. Um, there's a company called Praxis, not to be confused with Praxis Society. Praxis led by a guy named Isaac Morehouse. Very similar thing, right? They do like an apprenticeship program, place people with companies to get real That's on the job. That's the current training. CEO, Cameron Sorsby, actually on this podcast as well. Oh, beautiful. I didn't even know that. Yeah, I'm a huge mm -hmm. fan Episode of- Episode uh, 14. 
So this is hilarious. I would say I only have like six employees learning right now, but like four of them are practice alum. (laughs) Very, very allied, very allied. Uh, I'm a huge fan of practice. They're all, they're all great, like very smart, hardworking people. But the more learn arenas, praxis, you name it, the more of those those type of things we have, I think is how we beat this one. I, I really carried my kind of charter city mindset into education, which is like, I'm done complaining about it. I'm not working in politics. I'm just going to build a better alternative, full stop. And it's easier to do in education, at least, than it is in, in charter cities. But same principle applies, right? Stop complaining about it. Stop trying to fight it in the political arena. Just build a better alternative, full stop. Yeah, that's the the, uh, the full stop to almost uh, any episode that I'm recording. <laughs> that's, the solution is always to build better alternatives. Absolutely. Stop the arguing, stop the complaining. That's, there's always, and, and that's also the optimistic note that I'd uh, always like to end on, right? So, because we always talk a lot about problems in this podcast, right? And not the things that we're uh, ossifying, but hey, there is just no excuse, right? So there is always a way to do things, right? That's partly why I do the podcast, why I'm talking with entrepreneurs such as yourself and talking about the things you've already figured out. What, how can we create better starting points, lower barriers to entry? Sometimes we get to go to different places like Prospera. Sometimes there's ways in the United States, like loopholes that you can use. There's tremendous potential, tremendous resources, learnings by others entrepreneurs that have made it. And again, there's things like just losing the fear, right? So as long as you think very hard about what you're doing, even if it's not accepted yet by the mainstream, then, then by all means, go for it. You find there is other people out there who will help you on that journey. Right. There is no excuse to not building. Right. There is no excuse for being too pessimistic. Right. You will have a happy and fulfilled life if you can carve out that niche for you where you can do things that is useful, that adds value to the world. Right. And I think that's also the path to um, self education. Right. Whatever the situation is, find the people that you're aligned with and that you can help you. It can help you build. It can help you be useful and productive in life, right? So there is no excuse to retreat in your corner, to play video games, to, you know, the drugs or whatever else you might think. There is so much to do out there, right? And there is, we live at a time in history that's great, right? That's unprecedentedly great in so many ways compared to what we had before, right? So there, this, and we have the freedoms that we need to get started to build things. That's exactly right. I'll, I'll close by echoing what you said in a slightly different way, which is the following. Look, in 2023, you have anyone in the world with an internet connection has at their disposal access to the entirety of human knowledge for free. That body of human knowledge only grows day by day with the advent of things like GPT-4, like LLMs and many other, many other things. Uh, you now have a nearly omniscient superhuman assistant, tutor, uh, conversational partner to help you think through ideas, to help you learn more about things, to ask questions. There's no excuse to not do the thing that you've been thinking about that might give you meaning and purpose in life. The way I like to look at it is there is absolutely no limit, and I do mean literally no limit, to what you as a human being can do so long as it does not break the laws of physics. Anything else is completely within the realm of human action, and you just have to figure out how to do it, how many, how much resources of a variety of different kinds you need to do it and how much time it's going to take. There is, I learned this from, uh, I will never forget a, one of the early conversations I had with founder and CEO of Prosper, Eric Bremen. He's the one I'm stealing this from, so all credit to him. But 
Like you can do literally anything you set your mind to, so long as it doesn't break the laws of physics, literally anything. Elon Musk was called a crazy person when he said he was going to build a private rocket company. Now, SpaceX launches more payload to orbit than any existing government in the world, including China. Uh, and it's not even vaguely close. It's like they do like double what China does now. The entire idea of building an efficient uh, AI that can converse like a human, even five years ago, was called completely insane. And Sam Altman and the Open, Open AI team have fully done it, knocked it out of the park, right? Like all of these things sound like sci-fi. They sound insane. The idea that you have a supercomputer in your pocket that can access all of human knowledge would have sounded completely insane to people in the 1960s and 70s. And Steve Jobs built it. I, I use these examples to say like anything that doesn't break the laws of physics is possible. And if you are passionate about it, if it makes the world a better place and it will give you meaning and purpose, don't worry about what other people are going to think about it. Don't worry about, oh, what if I don't know what I'm doing? No one knows what they're doing. No one thinks about anyone else that often. No one's actually paying that much attention. You're not going to be embarrassed. It's okay to fail. Just go freaking do it. Full stop. Full stop. Amazing. Thanks so much, Trey, for coming on the show. Anything else that you need right now? Any shout out that you want to give? Any support you want to enlist? Yeah, absolutely. I'll just say, um, of course, we're, we're early stage at Learn Arena, but we are ending the wait list for the beta and launching the full product, including a subscription uh, product that I'm testing out here in just a few short weeks. Um, so everybody go to learnarena.com, check it out, go look us up on all social medias. Um, and if anyone's interested in learning more, whether it be working with us, talking, uh, talking about investment uh, or anything of that nature, or you're just interested in the product and want to learn more, hit me up, join our Discord community. I'm very active in there. Um, and yeah, come, uh, come support us and help us revolutionize education. Trey, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was epic to have you back. And I have a feeling that we're going to continue doing the riffs and rambles in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Nicholas. I loved it. To those who visit Mickey D's for their favorite breakfast item and then go somewhere else for coffee, give this Mickey D's brew a second chance. The glow up was real. Try any size iced coffee brewed with 100% Arabica beans for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. And pair it with a savory sausage McMuffin with egg for $2.79. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.